Hey, this is Carl Anderson. I'm the senior pastor of Sierra Bible Church, and this is our sermons podcast. I want to thank you for joining us today, and I hope that this message fills your soul with hope, helps you see the beauty of Jesus, and allows you to feel the love that God has for you. If you want more information about experiencing God's love for you personally, head over to sierrabible.org and contact one of our pastors. I love you, and I'm praying for you. Well, good morning and welcome to Sierra Bible Church. Uh, before we get into the word, let's uh, just give a, a thankfulness to God uh, for the craftsmanship of Brad Bakel, a brand new uh, podium here for us. Uh, so go ahead and give him a round of applause. Give God a round of applause for Brad's craftsmanship. Did an excellent job. Uh, five years ago when, when I first came to, to Sierra Bible Church, I, I had in mind a, a vision of a pulpit and uh, none of them uh, met my standards of I'm not just going to settle for just any rickety thing uh, here. I need a permanent pulpit that's, that's going to be expo- that where I'm going to be able to exposit the Word of God week after week. And I don't just want anything. So we used a music stand for a long time. Then we took one of the classroom ones for, for a while. Um, and then uh, it was two years ago, I believe, that I, I found this, mo- this design. I was like, that's it. That's the one that we need. And then I saw the price tag on it. I was like, no, that's not the one that we need uh, right now. Uh, but as uh, over the course of the last couple of years, um, Brad, I think just the last six months said, hey, let me design and make a pulpit for you. You got any ideas? And sent him over the picture. And a couple of weeks later, here it is. Uh, poof. And so thanks, Brad, for making the pulpit. I love it. And I hope you do uh, as a congregation as well. But more important than just the design and the craftsmanship of the podium and the platform is the design of the word of God that emanates from it. Amen. Uh, so, uh, if you are here with us, we are just going to be in one particular verse this morning. Uh, we are working our way through Hebrews. We've started at the end of Easter, the week after Easter, and we will be finishing sometime after Easter this year, and we are taking a nice, slow, persevering marathon race through this wonderful, beautiful, amazing, uh, encouraging book of Hebrews. Uh, let's start by asking, let me start by asking a question. Uh, I want you to call to mind, I want you to remember uh, what was that occupation that you hoped you would have when you were little. Now, not, and I don't want to say like uh, once you got to high school and you actually needed to start thinking of it seriously, of like actually can I do something like that? And when, when teenage life is when reality kind of sets in. You're like, you know, maybe I won't be a professional basketball player because I have the genetics that means I'm going to be 5'2 for the rest of my life. Uh, but what was it back when you were little, when you were a kid, that you hoped you would become as an occupation? Uh, I will I'll give you mine. I think the very first thing I remember desiring to be for my vocation was a garbage man. <laughs> Uh, the garbage truck would go through my neighborhood, this huge, massive garbage truck. And back in the day, when, when I was little, the garbage men actually got to like ride on the back of the garbage truck. They would get off, they would throw the garbage in the back of the truck, and then you would actually be able to see the huge truck come smashing down on the garbage. And I thought that was the coolest thing ever. You just get to see day after day, all of the garbage just gets smashed and come compacted year after year. Uh, So I could not aspire to the level of garbage man, so I had to settle for senior pastor of Sierra Bible Church. 
But I hoped to become a garbage man when I was five or six years old. It is so fascinating to me the way that we use the term hope today. Usually when we talk about hope, it is rooted in a future reality that may or may not happen. It usually denotes something like an optimistic wish about the future. Uh, I hope my kids will get good grades. I hope that my marriage will stay nice and uh, united. I I hope that I get a raise or a promotion at work. I I hope that... uh, the uh, 49ers do not uh, mess things up this afternoon uh, when they are playing. I even forget who are they playing. <laughs> that other team. Uh, shows how much I have followed football this year. Uh, When we talk about hope, usually it is desiring an optimistic wish for the future. But that's not the way that the author to the Hebrews talks about hope. And as we have been working our way through the book of Hebrews, uh, the author has given a detailed exposition about who Jesus is, what Jesus has accomplished, and now, like a good pastor, he's moving into application. He's moving into, if this is true about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, if he truly is a better priest who offers a better cleansing sacrifice for his people. Therefore, let us do these three things. Last week, we started with the first things. Since therefore, we have confidence to approach God. Therefore, let us approach God with confidence. That was the message last week. And now we see the second exhortation that the author to the Hebrews wants to give. And next week, we are going to hear the third exhortation that he desires to give. Last week, he wants to instill confidence inside the hearts and lives of believers so that they know they can approach God with confidence. He will not reject people who seek him through the person and the work of Jesus. Whole, that is his desire. And now he wants to give a second exhortation that is grounded in a secure spiritual reality that cannot be revoked. He gives one command that's grounded in one truth. And the command is this, let us hold fast to Christian hope. Let us hold fast to Christian hope. And this is grounded in one spiritual truth that the author to the Hebrews desires to unpack for us. He begins his exhortation by saying this, let us hold fast. Hold fast is the Greek word katechumen. Everybody say katechumen. You go, sounded like you were in the dentist, had mothballs in your hair. Mothballs, no, you don't put mothballs in your mouth. You put mothballs in your closet, right? Uh, You put the cotton balls, thank you. You put cotton balls in your, you you put cotton balls in your mouth and it sounded like catechumen. You, You can almost, you can almost hear what the word catechumen means, especially if you've been around church circles for a long, for a long time. Catechumen means hold fast to sound doctrine or hold fast to the truth with the understanding that the truth is to be applied to people's lives. Now, now I'm a seminary-trained pastor. 
I went to three years of rigorous Bible, rigorous Bible study and theological studies in a higher education theological institution. I absolutely loved it. For three straight years, I got to drink from a fire hose of constant barrage of, of higher learning where I just got to drink in true theological truth and biblical exposition after biblical exposition. It was genuinely, it was genuinely overwhelming and I loved every single second of it. We would be in class uh, talking, we, we would be translating the from the original Greek, the entire book of Colossians over a semester into and translating it into normal vernacular English. And we would be able to make our own trans, personal translations of the Bible. You can see why some seminary students go off in a very dark path because they make their own translations of the Bible. Uh, but we, we were able to translate the entire book of Colossians from Greek, and I absolutely loved it. But do you know what happened in some of those classes? We would be so deep in the theological truth of the scriptures and be drinking in all of this understanding of what God's word says that we could leave the entire class without one word of application to our souls. What it did is it made Christians and even pastors with really large theological heads who understood a lot of Bible doctrine. And that's what the seminary is good for. It's good for understanding doctrine and understanding understanding deep truths and and theology about God. But it's good for content and information. But when it comes to application, how this doctrine plays itself out in the lives of real people like you and like me, the central location for that is the local church. While the seminary may be great at theological exposition, it is the local church who makes experts in disciples of Jesus. How this truth applies to the lives and the souls of the hearers and followers of Jesus. And the author to the Hebrews is a good pastor. The author to the Hebrews not only knows theological truth about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. The author to the Hebrews also takes time to make sure that 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 his readers hear and understand precisely how this theological truth applies to their life. And he starts, or his second exhortation as he opens up this section of application in the book of Hebrews, he, he, his second exhortation is let us hold fast. Let us be taught with the understanding that this teaching is to be applied. Let us hold fast. And then he gives specifically what we are to hold fast to. Let us hold fast the confession. The confession. Now you kind of, we we already did something very similar to what the author to the Hebrews means by reciting the Apostles' Creed. The the confession just means an understanding of what we, of what Christians believe. Now, uh, he, now there is a nuance here to where it would mean something like a later theological development like the Apostles' Creed that we are to hold fast to because Christians have believed this for thousands of years. 
But the nuance that the author to the Hebrews gives is right here in the text. What specifically about the confession are we to hold fast to? And he gives it a practical nuance for you and for me. He says this, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. When the author to the Hebrews is talking about hope, he is talking about everything that Christ has done for his people that is applied to their lives in the present situation and will be true about their future salvation in the new heavens and the new earth. Notice what the author to the Hebrews doesn't say. He doesn't act like finding Dory. Just keep hoping, just keep hoping. He doesn't say that that hope is this active verb that you are to continue to hope. He's not like uh, the, the, the famous song by Journey, don't stop believing. You know, he's, he's, not, he's not saying don't stop hoping. He is saying very clearly and communicating as nearly as emphatically as he possibly can is that hope already is the possession of the content of the Christian's faith. I'll put it very simply. If you are a Christian, if you are in Christ, you have the hope of the gospel. It is yours because of everything that Christ has done, everything that Christ will do upon his return. You, as the believer in Christ, possess hope in Christ. So what he is exhorting his people to say is, there is therefore, because of all that Christ has done, Let us hold fast, there's the verb, let us be taught and let us apply, let us hold fast the confession, all that Christ has done, all that Christ will do, everything that he says he is, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. If we hold fast to Christian teaching, we hold fast to sound doctrine, we are holding fast to the possession that already is ours because of Christ. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. And then he gives it one more nuance without wavering. The word without wavering is the Greek word akline. It doesn't mean it has no meaning along these lines, but I like to think of it as as a clinging to, without wavering. It means unswervingly, without bending to the right nor to the left. We hold fast our confession of hope without wavering. It means in the very core of our soul, what we believe about Christ and what we believe about what he has done, what he will do in the future, that is the anchor for our soul and what we hold fast to unswervingly, without bending, without loosening our grip so that we might grab something else. The image that the author to the Hebrews is painting with this, with, with this particular verse is not necessarily just gripping something, so, gri- gripping something so tightly that you might fall off of. The image that the, that the Hebrews has is something more akin to a, a wife clinging to her husband because she is his or a father protecting unswervingly 
his children and not bending to the desires of an employer to make his job more important than his family. Or for the wife to bend her desires to another, another person over and above her husband who is hers. This is the image that, that the author to the Hebrews is saying, this is so important who Christ is and what Christ has done, that you are to hold fast to this confession without bending. Unswervingly, do not let your sinful hearts be bent in one direction or another so that you lose hold on yours. And the same problem that was happening in Hebrews in the, in the first century is very similar to the problems that are happening today. We're self-professed Christians are losing or abandoning or loosening their grip on the hope that is already theirs for because of the intrigue of other hopes that are they're promising and preaching other other gospels it was happening in the first century go down a little bit farther in Hebrews and we see the 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 contextual situation the real life setting and situation that he was writing to this to the Christians in the first century now Christianity in the first century was not the majority religion. It was not the majority faith. It was considered by the culture at large to be a Jewish sect. And at some point throughout the first century, the, the, the culture turned on Christians and, and, and they persecuted them. So when the believers who, uh, who are receiving the word from the Hebrew, from, from the author to the Hebrews, they re- he has an understanding of where they, where they were at, that they received the word with joy, They became Christians and they lived out those implications, but life was getting hard. Look at what happens down in verse 32. Recall the former days after you were enlightened, when you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Verse 33, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. He's understanding their situation of the people are standing against you because of your faith. You're being, you're being, you're suffering unjustly because of your hope that you have and you're holding unswervingly to the hope that you have in Christ. But look at how their hope applied itself when they first became believers in verse 34. For you had compassion on those in prison. Christians were being thrown in jail, said my brothers and sisters are are in jail. I'm going to do what Christ would do. I'm going to go visit them. For you had compassion on those in prison. You brought them food. You brought them drinks. You brought them nice, I'm with you cards. And look at what they did. And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. You knew if you go public, if you go visit other Christians in the, in the jail and, and you go understand and you go minister to them and show compassion on them, you're going to go public and you're, and they're going to come against you. And you joyfully accepted the, the plundering of your property. How could they do that? Verse 34 continues. Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Isn't that beautiful? Sure, 
Like goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Let's go visit our brothers and sisters. What can they do to us? Take away, take away our material possessions? We have a better and abiding possession in our confession of our hope. And then he gives the application. So what does that mean for them struggling and suffering in present tense? Verse 34, 5. Therefore, don't throw away your confidence. Their material comforts are being plundered. They're suffering unjustly. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. They endured the hard struggle. They continued in the faith, and the author to the Hebrews wants to continue to encourage them. One of the largest contributions to Christians today, abandoning their hope in the gospel, abandoning the possession that they have in the gospel and the hope that they have in Christ, is the loss of cultural privilege for being a Christian. The benefits of being a Christian today in our society are just no longer bestowed upon us. We get no social clout or cultural, cultural privilege simply for confessing Christ and attending church regularly. I'll give you one clear example from my family. My, my family, we love soccer. My kids play it. I coach it. But in order for us to play against the best teams and the best competitions and the best leagues, the, the leagues require you, you got to play your matches on Sundays both Saturdays and Sundays. There was a day in our culture when youth sports and recreational activities were reserved for Saturdays only. Many of you remember this, nodding your heads. Yeah, we need to bring those days back. So as a Christian soccer coach, I need to make sure that I'm safeguarding my Sunday mornings for our players and for our families so that we maintain our commitment to the local church higher than the commitment to any sports team. We're not going to increase in the, the table by sacrificing, uh, by, by sacrificing Sunday morning, by, by sacrificing Sunday mornings and saying like, oh, we're, we're not going to play any, and nobody's going to look down upon, or nobody's going to look up at us as, oh, you guys are just so holy. You guys are just so righteous and good. No, they're going to complain like, oh, we have to accommodate our schedules because you won't play on a Sunday morning. Okay. We, we don't earn anything socially by reserving that time for the Lord in worship. These dynamics, they're, they're playing themselves out in thousands of ways throughout our culture. Christians today, we receive no special treatment from our culture simply from being followers of Jesus. And in fact, in many spheres of life, the opposite is true. If you go public with your faith in Christ, you will have a specific target on your back. And that's okay, because we have the New Testament in which this is the Christian, this is the Christian experience for thousands of years. So when we believe, when we hold fast to our confession in Christ, we have to understand that other people in our, in our society and in our culture are not just simply going to bless us now because we hold fast to our hope, but that's okay. 
That's not the confession of our hope that we believe. Like, oh, we're going to believe in Christ because that means we are going to be blessed by our society. That's not what we believe. That's not the confession of hope. In fact, our confession of hope in Christ means that we follow after Christ, which means that probably suffering will come along with that as we follow after him. And which means if we are to hold fast to our confession of hope, that means we don't bend our desires to worldly comfort and worldly privilege if we are genuinely followers of Jesus. But bending our desires towards worldly comfort or or societal privilege, it's not the only way that, that we can bend our desires and lose our grip on the possession that we have in the hope of the gospel. There are many Christians today, self-professed Christians today, who are bending the confession of their hope to sexual desire. The, the human heart has bent itself in deviant forms of sexuality from the, from the very, very beginning of humanity. Lamech. In Genesis chapter 4, just a couple of generations after Adam, in chapter 4, verse 19, just a few generations after Adam and Eve, the scriptures tell us Lamech took two wives. It should not surprise us then, if this is the proclivity of the human heart from the very beginning, that the human heart will bend its desires and come up with all sorts of ways to taint God's image through sexual expression. So what does the lie of sexual expression tell us today? Well, it says, if we hold fast to our confession of hope in the free expression of our sexual desires, our unhindered sexual desires, we will live a self-fulfilled life. Therefore, we can't hinder any sexual desire that we have within us. And if we deny ourselves a sexual pleasure, we won't be able to live out our true and genuine identity. But holding fast to Christian hope tells us that we are intricately designed by a good creator. It tells us that the creator loves us and he designed us to share his goodness with his people through properly ordered sexual desire. And on this side of Eden, every single person in this room is disordered. Every single one of us is broken in this particular area. Every person has had deviant sexual desires and every person needs to be redeemed from those desires. The hope for the Christian isn't that we just get to express our sexuality in any way that our sinful hearts desire. The hope for the Christian is that Christ died for the ungodly desires of our hearts to cleanse us and to redeem us and to transform transform us back into the image of the creator that he'd originally designed us to be. That is our hope. Hebrews 13 puts it this way. Let marriage be held in honor by all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. One of the ways in which Christians express their hope in Christ, hold fast to their hope in Christ, is patterning their sexual desires after God's original design. And this means in order for Christians to hold fast to their hope, we don't bend our confession to the worldly hope of unhindered sexual expression. Third, there are Christians who are abandoning their hope, their Christian hope, for the worldly hope of political power. 
It's a bending of the Christian confession to somehow attain some level of Christian, there's a, of political power. Christian hope tells us we are sojourners here and we're citizens of heaven longing for a country that is to come in a kingdom that is not yet fully realized. Worldly hope says, place your hope in a political party. We will fix everything, both now and moving forward into the future. And if we place our full, uh, if we hold fast to our confession of political hope in a particular political party, we are bending to the desires of our sinful hearts. And both political parties, both major political parties preach a gospel of hope. If you trust fully in them, this is the realization of the hope that your soul will, will find. And this is straight from the Republican Party's platform. It says this, Republicans believe in liberty, economic prosperity, preserving American values and traditions, restoring the American dream for every citizen of this great nation. As a party, we support policies that seek to achieve these goals. Our platform is centered on stimulating economic growth for all Americans, protecting constitutionally guaranteed freedoms, ensuring the integrity of our elections, and maintaining national security. We are working to preserve America's greatness for our children and, and grandchildren. The Republican Party's legacy we were originally founded in 1854 for the purpose of ending slavery, compels us to patriotically defend American values. As the left attempts to destroy what makes America great, the Republican Party stands in the breach to defend our nation and our way of life. This is the gospel of worldly hope in American values. That's not Christian hope. That's not the Lord Jesus sitting on a throne, ruling and reigning over all nations, all tongues, all tribes forever and ever. But there's worldly hope that's preached by the Democratic Party as well. And it proclaims this as their, as their gospel. America is an idea. One that has endured and evolved through war and depression, prevailed over fascism and communism, and radiated hope to far distant corners of the earth. Americans believe that diversity is our greatest strength, that protest is, the highest form of, is one of the highest forms of patriotism, that our fates and fortunes are bound to rise and fall together, that even when we fall short of our highest ideals, we never stop trying to build a more perfect union. Again, it's worldly hope in a political party. If you buy in fully to what we are selling, then you will re realize the, the, the highest ideals of American patriotism. Our Christian hope is not placed by holding fast to American values, and it's not, it, it, it's not placed by holding fast to our view of progress. Our hope is in Christ and all that Christ has accomplished for us. When we hold fast to our confession of hope, we hold fast to Christ and to his kingdom above all things. There will be a day, there will be a day, brothers and sisters, when the United States of America is just a tiny, tiny dot on the timeline of eternity. And it's a faint memory, billions and billions of years from now. Would you kind of remember that? Oh yeah, but there's just been trillions of years since that, that nation rose and fell that I just, I barely even remember it. But Christ and his kingdom will endure forever. 
forever. So how do we ensure that our, that our souls don't drift to the right nor to the left? What's the foundational truth that we hold fast to that will help us to understand what it means to hold fast without wavering? The exhortation continues and concludes at the end of verse 23. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. The ground of the command to hold fast is the faithfulness of God to fulfill his promises. The God of our confession of our hope is the one who makes promises. Most of us, we we don't think about this enough, enough times, and we don't think about this deeply enough, that God himself makes promises to his people that he will fulfill, and he is not a liar. Later in Hebrews, the author of the the Hebrews will give example after example in chapter 11 of of people who are in the Old Testament who held fast to the promises of God. Chapter uh, 11, verse 11, talks about uh, the faithfulness of God to a particular woman named Sarah. And And the author of the Hebrews says this, By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even though she was past the age, even though it was biologically impossible for her to conceive a child. She received power to conceive. Why? Verse 11, since she considered him faithful who had promised. God promised Abraham, Abraham, you and Sarah are going to have a child of the promise and that Sarah is going to conceive. And God fulfilled his word. God came through, even though she had a barren womb, God brought a child forth. Now, I know some of you might be thinking as we, as we unpack some of this, yeah, that's great for the old covenant people of God when God makes specific promises to specific people, but now it's, it's just different. My answer to that question would be, yeah, it's different, but it's better by far for us. Hebrews concludes with example after example of old covenant people of God banking their lives on the promises of God and God being faithful. And and he concludes this section in chapter 11 with verse this in verse 39. And all of these, talking about all of the old covenant people of God, and all of these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. They received minor foretastes of the big promise that God had made, but they did not see the fullness of the realization of his son becoming flesh and dwelling among his people. They did not receive the fullness of the promises of God manifest in the person of Jesus Christ. Since, he continues in verse 39, since God had provided something better for us, now he's including us New Testament Christians along with them that apart from us, they, the Old Testament believers, should not be made perfect. The fulfilling of God's promises in Christ made long before you or I were ever born, made per- being made perfect through his sacrifice and his cleansing of our faith, what that does is it unites his past, his past work with our 
with our faith in his future work, and together we are made perfect in Christ and the fulfillment of all of his promises in both the new heavens and the new earth. You will not find a more sure promise and one who is able to fulfill their promises more than God in Christ. Think about all of the promises that are made to people. A college promises a high-quality education to their students. A financial advisor promises a percentage return on their investment if they invest it according to their plan. A savings account promises a yield of a certain percentage annually. A family promises an inheritance to its family members when they pass away. Each one of these promises are fine to make from each one of the people, but all of them have conditions that they can't control. The college might have faculty that resigns and diminishes the quality of their education. The financial advisor's plan to see certain, might not see, foresee certain external factors that, that, that have bearing upon the market and allow for the, the finances and the potential plan to be squandered. Family members might fight and rewrite their wills before dying. But the promises of hope in the gospel are unwavering. And as we hold fast to our hope in the gospel, we will find that the promises of God and the faithfulness of God are holding fast to us. Let us not bend as we hold fast the confession of our hope. For he who promised is faithful. Now, potentially, some of us here have been going through a difficult time in life. Potentially, it's difficult for you to see the realization of the promises in the person and the work of Jesus because life is just so hard. Potentially, maybe you're like one of these believers in the first century who is just suffering and struggling and in need of endurance. Let me invite you to to pray with one of our elders at the conclusion of the service that that God would open up your eyes to see the rock-solid assurance of hope that you have in the gospel. Maybe some others of us here, are, as I'm preaching and and teaching from the, the scriptures, maybe you realize I don't have any hope for the future or the things that I'm placing my hope in are really not that secure at all. And you've never placed your hope, placed your faith in the confession of hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And and you've never taken that first step to trust in Christ for yourself. Let me invite you to also pray with one of our elders at the conclusion of the service and and that you might be able to see with your spiritual eyes the hope of the gospel and the rock-solid assurance that your soul craves can be found in the person of Jesus. And you can begin clinging to the confession of hope both now and into the future. You can start that today. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the hope that we have in the gospel. We thank you that you are a good and a gracious God, a good creator who made us in your image. And though flawed and sinful, you did not leave us without hope, but you sent your son to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. Help us, O God, 
to not just have a confession of hope that we understand intellectually, but to have a confession of our hope that we cling to unswervingly as it applies in every area of our life. God, I pray for, for people here without hope or misplaced hope. God, I pray that you would reveal yourself and the goodness of your mercy and your grace. to people in this room that they might cling unswervingly to the confession of our hope potentially even for the very first time help us oh God to not bend to sexual desire to not bend to political power to not bend to comfort or worldly privilege but to place our hope fully and finally in the person and the work of your son. <laughs> in whose name we pray. Amen.